Welcome to episode 17, Cultural Competence with African-American Clients, Treatment Planning and Building a Therapeutic Alliance by Tia Briscoe, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hello, everybody, and welcome to part two of multicultural counseling, working with African-Americans in the outpatient treatment settings. My name is Tia Risco. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I am here to bring you the next part of this course, um, which really focuses on working with African-Americans once we get them through the door. Um, a little bit about myself again. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I run a practice in Los Angeles, California. Um, I identify as African-American, Black in some cases, however you want to have that said. Um, and I'm a huge advocate for Black and African-American mental health access. And so what that means is I really work hard to assist African-Americans in gaining resources and also maintaining treatment once they're in there. Um, it's been a big part of my life. It's been a huge part of my studies. And so this is what I am bringing to you today to share with you the knowledge that I've learned in just being an African-American person who has both been a clinician and also been on the other side of treatment as a client as well. And then working in different communities where the African-American population is about 90% of the population. And so I've had the opportunity to kind of work with African-American clients, specifically African-American males and youth in the treatment setting for a little while. And so I feel like I have a lot of good knowledge <laughs> and hopefully it'll help you out in your practice. Um, so in the first uh, course, if you were able to listen to it, or if you were able to look over it, we talked a little bit about some of the barriers to treatment. And so in this course, we're gonna talk about uh, how to assist clients who are now in the room with you. And so I just wanna go over again, some of the barriers to treatment, which were access to care. Um, so not accesses to resources, not learning about the resources, but actually getting into care and getting into treatment. Uh, another barrier is understanding what mental health is. And so again, we have the resources, but do we really understand what is happening in the room during the treatment sessions? Uh, number three is distrust in medical care. So we talked a little bit about the Tuskegee uh, experiments and how that kind of shifted African-Americans' trust in the medical community after so many years. If you don't know what the Tuskegee experiment is, I would recommend that you guys go and look that up. It's a huge, huge part of African-American culture um, that's not really talked about, but it also really had an impact on African-Americans. And then finally, uh, religious values are a big part of why African-Americans don't access care. And so in the last course, course one, we talked about how to kind of defeat some of these barriers or get over some of these barriers. So like, for instance, access to care, making a care affordable, going into communities that are kind of improvised and doing some volunteer work or doing some service work um, and really looking towards the needs of that community. Um, and understanding what mental health care is, just kind of doing a lot of psychoeducation with clients that come into your office, or if you have the opportunity to go out into the community and speak, that's a huge part of it. Knowledge is power, and so giving individuals the opportunity to have that power by giving them that knowledge. With religious values, it's more so just kind of getting out into the churches or the temples, just to kind of, you know, again, talk about what mental health services are, how they can impact the community, so on and so forth. And then finally, distress in medical care. That's where, as a therapist, that's where you're going to step in probably the most is really building that rapport with the clients and building that trust and building that mutual respect. Those are super duper important parts of treatment. So let's just say now you've overcome all of these barriers and now you have the client in the room. What are you going to do? What works best with African-Americans? What is all the good things we need to know? So this course, part two, is going to teach you a little bit about that. So I want to go over again the course objections. I'm sorry, the course objectives. I do not object. 
<laughs> I did not object to these course objectives, but some of the objectives um, and then kind of the course description. So again, this course is made for pretty much anybody in the mental health industry, um, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, even doctors, uh, mental health therapists, LMFTs, MFT associates, LCSW, uh, social work associates. Uh, pretty much the whole nine substance abuse counselors, pastors, religious clergy, all of that good stuff. This is for you. It's not a specific to one type of uh, clinical practice. And so it's going to go about an hour. So you get to hear my voice for an hour. Woohoo! That's exciting. And then the level of difficulty is moderate. It's not too hard, but some of the clinical words may be like, huh, what are you trying to say? And so um, if you don't have a lot of clinical background, some of the words may not make sense, but I'll try to make it as basic as possible. And then the course description. So as mental health uh, we professionals, we are pioneers in helping to access treatment and helping to get individuals into care. And so now that we've discussed some of the barriers in treating African-American individuals, we're going to talk about how mental treatment is actually done, mental health treatment is done, then treating any other individuals. There are a few cultural considerations and treatment types that can assist in making the therapeutic journey more culturally sensitive. And so when I say culturally sensitive, again, um, I'm not talking for all African-Americans, all black people. It's not to be generalized like this is like the one-all be-all for African-Americans. It's really not. Again, you have the client in the room. You really go off the client's vibes. This is just to kind of give you some background, some information, some research that has really been used in the African-American community to kind of increase their willingness to attend therapy. Another disclaimer, another two disclaimers I'd like to give is number one, this does not cover all African-American, all black races. Again, there are so many forms of black African-American. There's African, there's Caribbean, there's Belizean. There's all these wonderful uh, types of African-American, Afro-Latinas and Latinos. Um, it's the, the gambit is so huge. And so for the purpose of this course, I am going to be saying African-American are in some cases black. That's number one. Number two is I may use the term white or Caucasian a lot in this uh, course, and it's not to target white people or Caucasian people. I don't want you guys to feel targeted. However, a lot of the research has been uh, compared to how African-Americans and black individuals almost deal with kind of their white counterparts historically. And so when I talk about white people or Caucasian people, or I quote an article that has something to say about white people or Caucasian people or non-black counterparts, please understand that I'm not meaning to target anybody or make anybody feel bad or say, you know, you did this. It's a way of um, just giving the knowledge and spreading the information to you. So I don't want you guys to feel targeted, so don't feel targeted. <laughs> and so today we're going to talk a little bit about some of the treatment modalities that work really well for African Americans and um, also some of the types of therapy. So when I say types of therapy, I'm talking about individual therapy, um, group therapy, family therapy, substance abuse counseling, XYZ, all the wonderful different types of modalities. Um, when I speak of theories, which is going to be a little on down the line, um, we'll talk about what theories really work well with African-American individuals. And so we talk about modalities in the sense of what has been commonly used, what is a common used theme in the African-American culture as far as therapy is concerned. And so the first one I'm going to talk about, which is my favorite type of therapy, um, I was very well trained in this therapy, mostly because of just historically as an African-American person, um, group therapy has been a big part of my life and my training. And so um, we're going to talk about group therapy as one of the first and foremost ways of doing therapy with African-Americans. And so when we look at group therapy as a whole, you know, it's a group of people with uh, similar struggles or similar issues or, 
you know, people coming together to congregate and fellowship and talk about um, similar issues that may be coming up for them. And so when we look at African-Americans and the group therapy setting, there's a high correlation of positive outcomes of the client really getting what they needed. Um, group therapy is one of the highest rated treatment modalities, interventions, I guess you can say, for African-Americans because it really gives us that kind of kinship bond. And when I say kinship, K-I-N-S-H-I-P, kinship is, in layman terms, it's family that's not really yours. <laughs> and so I will explain it in a historical term. So way back in the slavery days, um, a lot of African-Americans who were brought to this country were separated from their families. And so with that, they had to almost build new families to kind of support themselves. And so when you're speaking of this new family, they're called your kin. So they're not really your family. They weren't by blood, but they're your family by choice. So in the African-American household, I'll go into some secrets. Again, I'm not generalizing, but in many of the African-American households that I know, you have your kin. For example, I just spent time with my sister um, today and my nephew, but neither of them are my blood sisters. They're my best friends. They've been my best friends for about 10 years. And so, you know, to me, they're my sisters. They're my kin. And so when I introduce them, I introduce them as my sisters. And people get really confused <laughs> because one of my sisters is African-American like me. So they're going to like, oh, I can understand that's your sister. But my other sister is Japanese-American. So when I introduce her, they're like, that is not your sister. And then I go into explaining what kinship is. She's my kin. My family has adopted her as my sister. If I introduce her to her, then anybody, introduce her to anybody, I'm going to call her my sister. And so that's really what kinship is. It's almost, okay, they're not related to you, but they couldn't be closer than blood to you. And so when we look at things like group therapy, it really brings that kinship to the forefront. Because with groups, you know the same people, if you have a closed group or, you know, if you have a group that's been going on for a long time, for example, like NA or AA, the same people are going to be at the same group at the same time, same place. And so for African-Americans, they know that this is going to happen. And so these people eventually turn into family because you have been vulnerable with, vulnerable with these people. You have allowed these people to um, really see who you are as a person. And so group therapy has been used a lot in just African-American culture and um, it's just, it's a big part of our lives. And so you know, if you're really looking to engage an African-American client who may be kind of distrustful of the system and you can get them into a group where there's like people, even if they're not the same race or the same color or the same culture, you are really better in a sense of getting that person to connect. And so some research that has been done about group therapy um, in 2006, Harper did a research project on um, individuals in group therapy, African-American individuals in group therapy. And he said, uh, they have determined that using the group therapy method provides a sense of relation, comfortability, and understanding for particularly black men in this case. In this researcher's study, African-American men reported that most of their higher education successes relied on support from their same race peers. Thus, group therapy provides a sense of promotion of the black culture and the black experience. And so again, um, if I didn't say it before, a lot of my studies were based on African-American men. Um, I did my thesis project on it in college and did actually ran a really successful group for Cal State Northridge called the Black Male Experience. And so a lot of my research and information comes from how African-Americans um, work where African-American men worked in the group setting. And it was a really, really important group for these young men. I had a lot of freshmen in my group. And so, you know, for these guys, they had a place to come to every day <laughs> if they wanted to. The group was an open group. So they had the opportunity to come every day or every other day and get support from older gentlemen. So we had gentlemen who were out of college already. They were just mentors in the group. 
And then we had gentlemen who were seniors. We had gentlemen who were in fraternities. We had gentlemen who identified as LGBTQ. And just the, the overall sense of just respect among these young men really showed me that these groups are really important to them. They do need these type of group settings. However, <laughs> the biggest however I will give to my particular study of black men in therapy was that they did not call it therapy. That was a big, big, huge part of it. And another study by Harper indicated that um, African-Americans will alter the naming of a group. For example, they avoid the word support group or therapy group or group therapy and deem it as a facilitated peer group. So the boys in my group, sorry, they're young men now, the young men in my group um, called it a just a group for, for black men. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't really have a name for it. But when I asked them, I was like, is this like therapy to you guys? They're like, yeah, but we'll never call it that. Like the embarrassment of like going to therapy and saying I'm going to therapy weekly was a struggle for them. But in the end, I ended up giving them cards and giving them, you know, low clinics for them to go to so they continue to get that support. And so it worked in my favor, but it also didn't work in my favor because of the stigma that surrounded going to therapy and um, engaging in therapy. So it worked in the sense of the group dynamic, but they struggled with calling it a actual therapy group. And so in another study by Brian in 2001, uh, they maintained that black individuals who are connected to a group while at a university tended to do better psychologically. He asserts that black Americans can benefit from all black groups for several reasons, including connectedness, identity promotion, and safety. He contends that the need for support groups are paramount for black individuals because they act as a strategy for dealing with the isolation that black people feel in white institutions. They also fill the gap that some white institutions leave by not providing adequate support structures. And so one thing that I found with my group is that they enjoyed that it was ran by a black woman because um, they felt like, you know, that kind of motherly sense was there, which was awkward for me because I was around their age. Um, but they had that motherly feel to it was like, OK, she's like our mom. She's coming in to support us as well. And so it just worked. And I hope that eventually somebody else would do more groups like that. Um, and it came to my attention that uh, certain men were doing like support groups and therapy groups inside the barber shop, And that's a huge deal, if I say so myself. And nobody steal this idea because <laughs> it's already been done. But I heard a lot that, you know, black women and black men tend to do a lot of their therapy in the barber shop or at the beauty shop, you know, these these people were coming in and just telling their their barbers and their beauticians their whole lives because they're sitting in the chair, especially as a black woman, for at least four or five hours. And so having that connection allowed them to be able to speak. And then you had a large group there because there were a lot of women getting their hair done and there were a lot of men getting their hair cut. So they were able to kind of vocalize that. And so I found out from some barbers in my study that men were coming into the shop and staying for hours because they were almost getting group therapy. So it also allowed me the, the opportunity to kind of step into the barber shop and like facilitate the conversations. But as a woman, it's always weird going into a man barber shop. So <laughs> I wouldn't do it often, but it was a great place. But again, it was that group therapy kind of setting. And so when I talk about other modalities that work really well for African-Americans, I mean, your common one is, is individual therapy. Um, and so we'll talk about that a little bit later because I do want to talk about how the therapist kind of affects individual therapy. Um, but I do want to go into, for my substance abuse counselors, um, NA and A. And then all the other A's. There's so many now. There's Gamblers Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous. There's so many. Um, so please forgive me if I, I left out any A's 
in the group. Um, but these groups have been shown to be relatively popular for African Americans for two reasons. Number one is that group setting and, you know, you have people that you know when you see every day and people who are having like struggles. And then you get a coach, I hope I'm saying that right, or, you know, a mentor in that group. And then also because a lot of um, of the A's groups, so NAAA specifically from what I know, are ran in churches. And again, you have that African-American tie to the church that's so strong that these groups being ran in um, inside of a church or inside of a holy building really connects them to, you know, I'm here for God, but I'm also here for recovery. And so AA for African-Americans has been a huge thing. I mean, I think I know more African-Americans who go to like AA or NA or an A group um, than they go to, to therapy because there's just something about those groups that really do provide so much support for them. And if you can get a person who's struggling with drugs or alcohol or substance abuse or, you know, anything to one of these groups and you can wrap them around and kind of get them a, a nice support system, they tend to do really 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 well in those meetings and so I just want to give a huge shout out to my substance abuse counselors because those meetings for me were like the creme de la creme they were like the perfect model of how to run a meeting how to support people inside and outside of the meeting and just it was just beautiful and so I, I my hats off again to substance abuse counselors you guys don't get enough credit for what you guys do do um, and even like uh, AA and a meeting counselors who kind of run the groups, you guys are just, again, hats off to you guys because those groups are like the model of what an African-American group or just a group in general really should be. They're so well navigated and so well maintained and they just, the empathy is there and it's wonderful. I could ramble on and on and on about AA and A meetings because I'm just so like, yay, those are wonderful groups. But yeah, so those are those are exceptional models of a group. And then you have other modalities like family therapy um, and just alternative therapies. Um, family therapy is always important for any person, no matter what race, culture, or creed. Um, for African Americans, it can go both ways. The family could be extremely supportive, um, but also extremely protective. Um, I say that in the sense of, as you know, we have a lot of distress in medicine. So the family can be very protective over what's happening within their family, especially if you have like a child in therapy or um, a family member who's really struggling in therapy, an older adult in therapy. Um, there, there's a sense of protection around them. And so you really have to make sure that like you have your releases and you are coordinating with like whomever you need to coordinate in the family. Um, because it can almost come off as a sign of disrespect if you're not speaking with a particular person first. So for example, um, in my work in Lancaster and Palmdale, which is a heavy gang uh, gang infested area which is interesting because I was born and raised there and it wasn't like that when I was little um, there there's a lot of gangs and so when I was doing work I was dealing with a lot of kids who had open DCFS cases or referred by um, their schools or after-school programs and so I would get a lot of fathers and moms actually but more fathers and moms who are in gangs and as scary as it sounds, and now that I think about it in retrospect, I'm like, wow, I would really go to like these people's houses and like, you know, to, the, to do therapy with these people. Um, it was really like the, the high core trade system. Like you don't come in the house without speaking to dad first, then you speak to mom, then you speak to the child, you know? And so the respect had to be there. And even though, you know, I'm, I'm not here for the gang life, there was a pecking order, you know, and you, you don't speak out of turn. And so as a therapist, being a black woman at that and having to go against some of these dads who were black men, like I said, because 90% of my caseload was African-American children, 
going against these dads. Oh God, I almost quit therapy doing it a couple times because they're just so strong and they are like, this is what needs to be done. He's not listening. She's not listening. This is how we handle things in our house. And so it's really about breaking through those walls and saying, you know what? I respect how you do things in your house, but let me just give you some other options. <laughs> That's how you stop the phrase thing. Let me give you some options. Um, so that it's not as difficult or you're not getting in trouble by DCFS. Let me just try a couple things. And they would soften up because it wasn't like I was ignoring the pecking order. It was, if it was dad, let me go talk to dad first. Let me have a conversation. Can I have a conversation with dad? It was about respect. Can I have a conversation with dad? And dad, most of these dads were hard, rough to the core. But if you came in with respect, I want to help your child. I want to service your child and make sure your child is doing well because you don't want them to live the life that you have lived. It was a lot of respect that came from that. So it was really about respecting the family. And so when you're bringing a family into family therapy, you have to have to respect them, especially an African-American family. I mean, all families need to be respected, but there is a pecking order. And sometimes the pecking order looks a little different. Sometimes um, in my family, it was grandma. <laughs> <laughs> and my grandma just recently passed away. So I tell a lot of stories about her because she just taught me so much about just being a wonderful therapist and a wonderful person. But pecking order was grandma. You, you can't do nothing to this family without talking to grandma first. Grandpa couldn't do anything in this family without talking to grandma. Like we had a family full of matriarchs. So that was the flip of anything that happened you had to go through grandma first. <laughs> you couldn't just step in and be like, I'm doing therapy with this family. No, you needed to talk to grandma first or grandma would be upset. Why didn't anybody come and talk to me? So grandma, rest in peace. I know you're like, why are you telling them? <laughs> but <laughs> I think it's important for you to know that in some African-American families, you will be met with resistance, um, especially if you are not black um, because of just kind of some of the distrust especially with the older um, people in the family. So just just always be respectful, be empathetic, and really go in with the best intentions. Don't just go in there for a paycheck. I tell everybody, don't do this because of a paycheck because you will be burnt out before you even get started. And so to round it back around, that's one side of the family you can see, but you can also see the family who does not support an individual in therapy. Um, so you tend to have those families who are very secretive about just their lives. Again, distrust. Distrust is a huge word in the black community is trusting people and not trusting people. And so you may have a family that struggles with trusting someone. Um, and so they don't want you to, to talk. You don't talk. You go in there and you say, everything is great. Everything is lovely. Nothing is wrong. All is well. Blah, blah, blah. That's it. You don't talk. And so when you get a family like that, again, the empathy is there. You know, it's really about first and foremost building trust. And so, you know, don't go in there acting like you know everything and that you're the expert in this family. And even though you're the expert in therapy, the family is really the expert themselves. And so if they're hiding something it's not because they're hiding it from you it's about protecting the family and it's it's something that has been passed down from generation to generation to generation you have a lot of mama cubs papa cubs in families and so they will come after you and so a lot of clients tend to not tell their families especially like the younger generation so like maybe 18 to like 25 um that they're not that they're attending therapy um, because it's just, it's a lot sometimes to tell your family and you're like, well, why are you the one telling all the secrets, you know? So, you know, but it, it goes back to me being a therapist and my grandma like, well, what is that? <laughs> you know, they just don't understand. And so it really takes a lot of respect and um, understanding that you are not the expert in that situation. And so just being empathetic to that person who may have to hide for a little bit that they are in therapy because they don't want to be talked out of it. And so it's teaching them how to stand up for themselves. 
and just really working with the family. It's really hard sometimes because that particular situation is a lot harder than the first situation because um, it's almost like being in the closet. You know, I'm going to therapy, but I don't want anybody to know. And so that's individual therapy for you. So those two modalities always seem to work. You have alternative therapies too. Um, I have been studying music therapy and that was like one of my favorite things to do with African-American clients, especially my young African-American men who really enjoy um, rap music. I just feel like rap music and I, I say this as a fan, but also as a therapist, I just feel like rap music has so much um, soul in there. You know, for example, I was listening to this young rapper who was recently killed, um, X, X, X Tentacion, and um, he has a song that's talking about depression. I was like, wow, like, you know, and Logic, um, the 1-800 song. I mean, there's so much music out there. And so that was something that I held close to me because my father is a musician. And so I was like, you know, I'm going to incorporate that into therapy. But just any alternative therapy, I mean, you know, walking therapy, um, oh God, equine therapy, just any kind of therapy that you can introduce a person who may not have access to those type of therapies, that's so important. Um, it's just, it's extremely important because it gives somebody the opportunity to learn something that they've never learned before. I had a little girl who had her first equine therapy session and she came back crying and she was like, I've never seen a real horse before. And I was like, oh my God, that's so just amazing. And it was therapeutic for her in so many ways. And so, you know, I always encourage alternative therapies with African-American clients because there's just so much that can be done in the world and there's so much as a therapist that you can learn about your clients um, when doing alternative types of therapy. It's something that I'm really proud of that, you know, I see therapists just doing, you know, journaling and writing therapy and creative art therapy and just so much. And, you know, I say music therapy again because music is such a big part of just African culture in general, if you go to anywhere that has, you know, African-American individuals, um, the Caribbean to Africa to Europe, um, the U.S. Um, to the Latin Latino and Latina countries and just music is such a big part of just the African-American experience and from dating back centuries and centuries ago and so my I'm a huge advocate of, of music therapy because I feel like it just provides so much to the African-American culture it's something I believe in and so if you're a music therapist on here kudos to you make sure you get your African-American clients in there <laughs> it's an amazing feeling to just watch and so um drum therapy oh my god I had a few clients who were African and they brought in their drums and into a group setting and just the music and the the pain and the, the joy that came out of just those drums and then playing the drums, exceptional. So I speak about that because again, alternative therapies, you can't go wrong with them. Um, there's no real therapies that don't work with African-American clients. It's more so about the therapist and their approach. You can get an African-American client to do anything if your approach is well. Um, if you're just like, I know everything, or you're going in with some privilege and you walk in the room with that privilege automatically, then you can just forget having anybody as a client because privilege just makes you look bad. And so, you know, but you have to be aware of your privilege, but don't walk in there with privilege. I just feel like that's not going to help anybody. <laughs> and so I would say there's nothing that doesn't, there's no treatment modalities that don't work, but there are therapists that don't work. So don't be one of those therapists. That's why you're taking this training. You don't have to be one of those therapists. And so the last thing I really want to kind of touch on in this particular um, module for part two is um, just about race in therapy and how that kind of works itself out, if that makes sense. Um, 
I think it's important that when you're working with anybody of a different race or a different culture or anybody who has different beliefs than you, um, anybody that's different from you, which is pretty much all your clients because nobody is the same as you. No one has the same beliefs as you. No one has the same parenting style as you. Um, but just being fully aware of how you present in the room. Um, you know, in, in tons of reading, you know, it tends to be that African-American individuals or black individuals shy away from therapy when they are given a therapist of a different race, if that makes sense. Uh, more particular Caucasian Americans, um, there tends to be a lower engagement in therapy when the individual is Caucasian. That's changing a lot too because of just the, my kids call it the wokeness <laughs> that is coming up in America and just the political climate. You know, they're starting to be a little bit more trust in, in therapy, but I still see, I work for an online platform that's um, a texting-based platform. And usually when I see like a call for a client and it's an African-American client, they're usually asking for an African-American therapist. And so I asked some of my clients why, and they were just like, you know, they get it, and there's a shared experience, and, you know, I don't want to feel like I'm being judged if I say something against a white person, or if I say I don't like white police, or, you know, or if I don't agree with, you know, who's president right now, all of that. And so it just puts people in a weird predicament. Because you want to serve and you want to do the best you can serving, but you almost have to be invited into this house. <laughs> so, you know, you have to be invited in this kinship because once a therapist for African-American individuals, once a therapist is amazing and really comes in with warmth and empathy and is just flowing with that client, that, that therapist almost becomes like family to where you respect that therapist's opinion and are willing to invest in that therapist. But it really comes with doing what you have to do to make um, the, the place comfortable. And sometimes you just may not be the therapist for that particular person for other reasons, not just race. And so I wanted to pull up a few articles that talked about race. And so this one was completed by Jones and Siegel in 1977. So it's kind of an old um, article, but I just think it, it's really relevant and it's a little bit long, so bear with me. So they say, the issue of white therapists treating black clients is complicated by the fact that black clients in this country have been systemically oppressed economically, politically, educationally, and socially for hundreds of years by whites. When facilitating therapy with black clients, Caucasian therapists should keep the above consciousness. Caucasian therapists should be aware of the underlying issue of race that presents itself quietly in the therapy space. Caucasian therapists are prompt, promoted to consciously examine several unconscious processes during session, including feelings of guilt, countertransference, and power balancing. Once the Caucasian client, clinicians have acknowledged all of the above, they can then focus on remaining sensitive to the client's culture. This is done by remaining goal-oriented and educating oneself on black culture, aspirations, and morale. So I want to take this into bite chunks, um, considering that we only have maybe a couple more minutes of time, and I don't want to go over your time. But uh, the first part where it talks about um, facilitating with black clients, um, they should keep the consciousness that there is a lot of oppression in the community. I think that's really important um, because with just the climate right now and I speak so much on the climate because you know in the past couple of years we as a society have experienced the death of so many black men to the point where it's it's just a lot um it's I feel like it really started with Emmett Till um again if you don't know his story then please go google it it's the the images are hard to see but it just it shows just how the climate kind of started to Oscar Grant, who passed away in the Bay Area, um, you know, Mike Brown, who was killed in the middle of the street, um, Trayvon Martin, who really kind of set the tone for like the current 
uh, killings to the young lady who was killed in the Bay Area recently. You know, it's just Eric Garner, Philando Castile, just, I mean, there's so many names. And so when we think of being a clinician and we are talking about the most vulnerable part of somebody, which a lot of the times for African-Americans, the most vulnerable part is having to deal with being stereotyped. Um, it's hard to walk through the world and not feel vulnerable, you know? And I'll speak by experience because I want you guys to give the truth. Um, my, my boyfriend at the time, he has uh, long, beautiful um, dreadlocks. And every time he gets pulled over, I'm like, have your license out, have this, have that, have this out. Because the fear that's instilled with me as a black woman is that he's gonna die, you know? And it, it, it's an unfortunate fear, but to many black individuals in society, the fear of you're gonna die if you make the wrong move, you need to not wear your hood, you need to not do this, you need to not do that. It's, it's a real fear for, for all of us. And so when you're going into the therapy room to be vulnerable, and tell somebody, these are my fears, these are my concerns, and somebody tells you, oh, those aren't logical, not all police kill people, you know, maybe they deserved it. That's you saying that their fear is not justified. And so what I want you guys as a clinician and what means to me and what I'm so passionate about is that you take that fear and empathize with it. Have them express that fear. What is that like for you to have to walk into the world and be fearful that you're going to die, you know, because again, for many black men and even black women in America, there's a little fear in our hearts that say, if we make the wrong move, we may not be on this earth anymore. No matter how many degrees you have, and my boyfriend has a master's degree and does a lot of work for the mental health community, but that may not save him if he meets the wrong person. And that's even with black on black crime. I'm not just saying that, that white people do this or people of non-color do this. It's black on black crime too. He can meet the wrong black man and end up dead as well. So it's, it's an epidemic that needs to stop. And so going into the therapy space with somebody who is not of like race with you or who identifies as African-Americans, you need to always have it in the back of your mind that that little inkling of fear of this person has to walk through life fearful that they may not live to see the next day. And that's where your empathy comes from. And so I'm sorry to get on my soapbox, but I just wanted to make that very clear that that is something that's really important to all African-American clients at this point in life. Um, but just acknowledging that, you know, you may have feelings of guilt, like, oh my God, you know, I don't want to be that person who makes you afraid to be in the room. Just be yourself, you know, don't apologize for all white people because I'm not going to apologize for what all black people have done to all white people. I'm not going to do it. And so it's not your job to apologize or feel guilty, um, or feel like you have to balance the power of like, okay, you're powerful too and so am I. Like you don't have to do that. Just go in the room and be you, be yourself. You know, let yourself shine and that's what's important. And so I say that because um, I have one more article that I want you guys to hear and it was given by Sager, Brayboy, and Waxenberg in 1972. So these are a little bit older, but um, they know that it is essential that the therapists know and more importantly want to know and to understand the living conditions, cultural patterns, and value systems of the people they seek to help. Without this appreciation, it may be difficult for persons to remove from the ghetto to accept the style of life of those who are part of it and refrain from attempting to impose Puritan ethic-tinged morality upon it. Since many dominant and local discourses, there's your narrative therapy, which we will be talking about soon. Um, since many lo local and dominant discourses are taught through culture, therapists are encouraged to be mindful of traditions, beliefs, and dynamics associated with individual clients. And like I say so many times, and it bears repeating, that's just important for all clients. 
that's <laughs> that's just an important part for all clients that you're really taking into account their beliefs and their belief systems. And, you know, to many African-American people, I don't want to generalize, but I'm going to say to many African-American people, our culture is so important to us. And I speak because I'm putting myself a part of this because I am a part of the culture. The culture is so important. You know, our music, our movies, our our icons, you know, I was just watching Aretha Franklin's funeral and it was seven hours because to us, the black community, our icons are so important to us. And, you know, family is a huge, important part to us. Um, getting education now has become a huge part of our lives. Um, so when I say that really looking at those belief systems, it's so important to just break those belief systems down and really work off of those, using them <coughs> as interventions or coping skills or just all parts of the, the situation. You know, there's so many things that can be used based off a person's culture um, that, you know, can be can be amazing. Um, I know a therapist friend of mine who's a white woman. I love her to death. <laughs> she used Tupac in one of her sessions. And if anybody knows me as a person, I love Tupac. Um, not because of who he was as a rapper, even though I love all of his songs as a rapper, but just who he was as a visionary for the black culture and just who he was um, as a person and as an advocate for black mental health treatment and um, working through things like substance abuse and depression and, you know, living a good life. And so when I found out she used Tupac, I was like, what? Why did I think that? <laughs> but she used him in such a way that her and her client just connected so much. And she's like, I didn't know anything about Tupac. I didn't even, you know, I've never heard a Tupac song in my life, but just the vibe that came into the room was so strong between them that I was like, wow, this is amazing. And so also, I also want to look at the vice versa of that, having a black therapist with a white client, it's the same difference. You know, I I tell a lot of my, my upcoming um, black therapists who I mentor you know, you have to learn how to balance your countertransference in a room. You know, if you have a white man who is saying that he hates all black people, you need to decide if you can handle that type of situation. You know, um, it could be that you refer out or you process through that and figure out how you guys can still maintain a relationship, a, a therapeutic relationship in that setting. You know, it's not just all white people and, you know, black clients. It's also black therapists and in every other race of clients, you know. So if you're an African-American therapist listening to this, too, you also have to be aware of your countertransference and your power balancing and your feelings of anger or your feelings of guilt or, you know, your dissociation in this situation. And so I don't want this to just be a like one sided thing because it really isn't, you know, as a black therapist. It's really hard. And I've had clients come into my office that say, I don't really care for black people, but I'll do therapy with you. And I had to figure out how to get my life together. And so I think that with just any situation that you're brought into, you have to figure out your level of comfort and your level of willingness to know about the other culture and the other race and the other belief system. And so, you know, I always recommend that therapists get consult if they have um, difficulty in a particular situation or something is brought up in the session where you're like, you know, I'm not this person's race or culture or a part of their community. And so how can I help them? How can I best serve them? Because like I said, this training is wonderful, but it's only a bite-sized piece of what really happens when you have a client who's of a different race in your um, in your room. And so really seeing as a therapist how you can kind of handle that situation, how you can do that. Always say consult, consult, consult. I'm a licensed therapist and I still consult 
on situations where I'm just like, whew, okay. <laughs> Didn't know what I was doing in this situation, but I'm going to keep it going strong, you know. So, you know, always consult. I think it's so important. But as we kind of dwindle down in this particular part of the session, I really hope that you guys got a lot of this. Um, like I said, it's not the end all for be, be all for all black clients or all African-American clients. You really do have to take into account so many other things with the client, but it just gives you more of a sense, I hope, of just what you may be presented with when you come into the room um, or in which are in the space or how you maybe would want to set up your therapy or something that you will want to present to the client about doing therapy with them. Um, there's so many other ways of doing therapy and there's so many types of therapists who have their own styles. And so I never want to shy anybody away from really doing their own style of therapy. But I just hope that this provided you with a little bit of insight on how to work with uh, clients while you're in the room with them. Um, and just like every other treatment plan or, or you know, treatment progress, um, just having a good end game is really important. So having a good termination plan is very important. Um, again, because kinship is so important in the African-American um, culture, getting them connected to other people, getting them connected to, um, you know, outside resources, outside groups, having their family come in if they have friends. Just getting them connected somewhere because I truly believe the bond of just kinship is just so important and I love having kin. I love being able to have a support system around me. You know, the saying in black culture is it takes a village to raise a child and it really does take a village to raise and help maintain a person, you know, so we don't want to ever make our clients feel alone. and so. I hope through this um, particular information that there was um, more so what we look for when we go into the session as African Americans and just what to really be aware of and, you know, things like racism and stereotyping and all of that, that could really bruise the, the person in general. And so I really hope that you guys is therapeutic setting I want to say it's just welcoming and warm and just be yourself and just always keep an open mind and looking to learn so I would also like to point out that when we're talking about multicultural counseling we're not just talking about um, working with different races but we're also talking about working with different countercultures and subcultures and so when we're looking at multicultural counseling it's more so just um, counseling diverse populations and so with this being specifically based on african-american individuals um, I want to think of multicultural counseling it's not just uh, counseling somebody because they're black or african-american but it's just seeing the whole entire picture and so when we're looking at different modalities that really encompass uh, working with African-Americans, it's not just a one-size-fits-all, but it's more so just so we can look at how the different modalities have impacted um, therapy with African-Americans. And so, for example, if we look at things like individual therapy, what is the likelihood that an African-American person is going to attend individual therapy over group therapy? And so, can we mix the two of them together? How can we make it more effective so that this client is getting everything they can out of the therapy, the therapeutic process? And so, like I said, a lot of my um, treatment has been with African-American children, African-American families, and African-American males. Um, but one thing I do want to talk about before I get into modalities that I feel like I haven't talked a lot about is working with African-American women. And it's noted that African-American women tend to uh, 
prefer individual therapy more than anything. Um, and that is because mainly the African-American woman in most African-American families, and like I said, I don't like to generalize, but, you know, they are kind of the roots of the family. They are, especially like the grandmother and the mothers, and, you know, those are kind of the roots of the family. Um, so when we're working with African-American women specifically, they tend to do better in individual therapy, only because individual therapy gives them um, space to uh, present their needs in a more vulnerable setting, because it's usually really hard for African-American women to have the opportunity to express themselves in any other fashion or factum, because they're usually being the strong one in the in the family. There's a wonderful book um, out there if you guys ever have a chance to sit down and read. I know you guys are probably all working clinicians, but um, it's called Black Macho and the Myth of the Superwoman. I will say that again <laughs> because it's a, a long um, title, but it's called Black Macho and the Myth of the Superwoman. You can get it on Amazon. Um, it's one of my favorite books, and it's by a lady named Michelle Wallace, and it really talks about black women being the, um, the head of the household and being strong, but also being taken advantage of by their male counterparts. And they, they talk a little bit about therapy in the book and just, you know, black women going to therapy and how individual therapy tends to work for black women because it gives them a chance to open up and not fear any repercussions of being themselves. You know, they're usually stereotyped for being loud and being, you know, over the top and all of that. So when I'm, when I'm speaking of black women, I would always promote um, both individual therapy and group therapy, but I really recommend starting off with individual therapy just so you can kind of present the room present the space allow this person to be vulnerable as a black woman who went to therapy it was a very scary spot for me to be in because it was me saying like i'm weak i can't run my household i can't do this and it was all these thoughts running through my head that weren't true but because i had this myth of what a black woman should be i was like i don't want to talk to somebody and feel bad about needing support and so for me I chose <laughs> another therapist outside of my race um, who is a spectacular human being and I'm not saying I wouldn't have had the same um, experience with a person that was inside of my race but I, I wanted a white male who could really pull me out of my comfort zone because I feel like when you're having a conversation as a black woman, you're having a like a girlfriend conversation. You don't want your therapist to be that way. Some do. Um, but I wanted somebody who was going to take me out of my comfort zone and really challenge me to be vulnerable in a space where I would not normally be vulnerable with the type of person I would not normally be vulnerable. And I enjoyed him. I, I loved him. And then being on the opposite side of the totem pole and working with women who are not of color or women who are a different race from me, um, that was a learning experience for me because, you know, there's so many things you don't know until you're put into an experience uh, that requires you to step up and step forth. And so just being uh, an outpatient therapist, an individual therapist, and then being an individual therapy as a black woman, that was really important. And I feel like it was a great insight on how much individual therapy, along with group therapy and family therapy, but individual therapy for a black woman is really important. So now I gave you that um, little spiel about black women. We'll talk about some of the other modalities that work really well um, for black people and black individuals and African-American individuals. Again, my name is Tia Briscoe. Thank you guys again for listening. I hope that everything that I talked about was helpful to you and that you have a little bit more insight on how to work with African-American clients, some type of modalities that work and just how to be present in the room. 
Thank you so, so much for listening. Again, I wish you guys all the best in your journeys. I hope that these trainings have just given you so much knowledge and information. It's a wonderful resource and just continue to use it to your advantage. Thank you guys. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.